welcome to Sound Engagement. Uh, I am your host, Peter Anderson. I'm Brad Mills. Hi, Brad. Good to see you. And today we have a wonderful uh, opportunity to speak to uh, Missy Pierce. And um, Missy you, uh, was in the ministry and uh, still, well, um, for what, 20, 20, I believe 25 years, wasn't that? Um, or that, a year past um, 18 officially. And 18 officially. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. And now she is a student, first year student, is that right? Yes. At uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, getting her uh, master's in counseling. Yeah. And uh, we're so happy to have her on. So um, yeah. I'm just going to talk really today. I'm going to have your story kind of speak for itself and uh, some, something that we could really learn about church and also just accountability. We're going to hopefully talk about the need to address addictions, which is a really serious problem. I think not just with uh, people in the congregation, but also with pastors as well. Um, how we can care for those in ministry, especially when it comes to sex addictions. That's what we'll be really focusing on today. Mm -hmm. um, Missy, but I'll just uh, start out with you. I mean, tell us a little bit about, why don't you tell your audience about who you are? Tell us about you and, and, uh, and Ken and what happened these past few years, what it's been like for you. And you can just maybe just tell the audience who you are. That's okay. That's okay. Um, so we'll just start with just a little bit of my story. So um, broad background, but I met my husband um, in 1993 at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. Um, I came from Pennsylvania. He came from Michigan and um, we met there and married three years later when he finished his MDiv. Um, had a good marriage. I thought was a great marriage. Um, I can look back now and see signs that tell me it wasn't so great. Um, but we can talk about that as the podcast goes too. Um, I'm sure your listeners will remember um, 2016, I think it was, could have been 15, but I think 16 when the Ashley Madison list came out and um, was leaked to the public and my husband's name was on that list. So that started just kind of a whole new chapter in our lives. Um, he had to resign from the church and um, we stayed together for a while, but as I started counseling and began to see signs of what had happened in the past, and as I learned more about his addictions, um, our marriage kind of fell apart, and understandably, <laughs> I think. Um, and his addiction continued to spiral for the next several years. Um, divorce took a while. We didn't get divorced till 2019. But as his addiction spiraled, um, he just sunk deeper and deeper and farther away from God and ended up getting into some legal trouble um, connected with the addiction. And he chose the route of suicide um, to um, escape uh, punishment that was coming and just to um have an out i think from all his pain over the past few years so right now i'm a single mom mm. four kids i love my kids um two in college one a senior in high school and one a freshman in high school and i as um peter said have gone back to rts and in getting my counseling degree um so i have a christian ed degree and a counseling degree and just really want to use that i really want to work with pastors wives um, women in trauma in general is my goal. I just, I, the main reason I really wanted to, ha you know, have you down is that I wanted to be, you know, have this somewhat raw because this is what, what really happens. And yeah. I don't think we talk about it that much. Um, I, I, I am of the strong opinion that, you know, um, wherever you are, however dark you can be or wh wherever dark place you are, that there's hope. And it's, there's, I think that's the saddest thing about, about you know what happened what had happened to ken right there mm -hmm. but it, when did you start noticing things and talk to us a little bit about that i mean just you said right from the beginning did you mm -hmm. notice some you know depression and just what what would you say kind of led you know the the um yes the road okay from, i'm gonna be yeah. very vulnerable with y'all sure <laughs> so, yes I don't okay mind. okay um, <laughs> there was a lot of depression right from the beginning there was also um he what I know now is that he did have some sexual addiction in his past, even before we were married, um, from a young age for him. And so that carried through to our marriage in just his constant need for sex. Um, so I can look back now 
and see that on his part at the time, um, getting married, coming to the Reformed faith. My goal was to be the perfect submissive wife. And that actually came back to haunt me <laughs> in this situation. I still love my theology, um, but I can see now how that can be abused. So I can see the red flags now, but I think a lot of times people look at the wives of sexual addicts and they blame us and say, well, it just, it's because their needs aren't getting met at home. And that was not the case for us. Um, that addiction also carried through to our relationship. It became so much more than that eventually. But I can look back and see those kind of flags. I can also see the depression and the anxiety that for him were almost always present. Even when we were dating, when he was in seminary, he had several panic attacks. And um, if you take someone with that personality and you put them in the ministry with the pressures of ministry, they're going to find a way to cope with that stress. Um, and Peter, you know more than I do being the licensed counselor, but I really think um, that's what happened to Ken is he found a way to cope with the stress of ministry. Were there things that could have happened in those earlier stages seeking help counseling was the yes. was there a safe place for him to go to get help there wasn't um or at least he felt like there wasn't okay and i think um if i think back to my time at rts before you know there is this dichotomy at times between the mdiv side and the counseling side and at that time, I was on the MDiv side, getting my MA and engaged in MDiv. And um, they didn't always take the counseling side seriously. And so when you come out of that and you're struggling, you don't feel like you can help, you can ask for help um, from that side, from the people in the MFT then or the um, MAC program. But can also, firmly believed that if he went to counseling, he would be fired. Um, so, and I actually had that confirmed for me from someone who um, does know that church. And, and his opinion was that might not be true across the board, but at this church, it could have been. And so whether or not it was a valid concern on his part, he firmly believed it. But then you also have these pastors who that's their livelihood. If they come through and confess, okay, I'm struggling with pornography, they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. And so that's taking care of wife and children and moving again and trying to figure out where do I go in the ministry? I'm not going to get another job in my denomination. So what do I do for help? So if he could have turned to someone early on, I think, I think his addiction could have stopped. I think it could have been preventing, prevented from escalating to the point where it got. Um, he just didn't feel like he could do that. I actually think that Ken probably had a, that was a pretty valid point though. I don't think he was being probably too irrational in that moment. You know, right. I mean, I remember, you know, I like the way you worded it, though, because it was just, yeah, like, I love how nuanced you are with this word, because, I mean, he felt that way, and we don't really know, but when you say that, and if I were actually counseling somebody that had said that to me just then, I, I probably would validate why they're anxious in that moment. That, right. Yeah, yeah, you, you probably, that might occur. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not like completely irrational, you know, it's, um, why do you think that is? I mean, is it just, I mean, I don't want you to go all the way, you know, right. 60 years of Mississippi history or anything. <laughs> we're, not, we're not putting that on you, but I, I mean, is it just, is it like, and I mean, is it counseling is in general and bit, or is it, you know, it, Hey, I have a porn addiction or is it both? I think it's both. I think, there is still a stigma to counseling. I've been told by several people, um, professors, that it's less of a stigma now. I don't know if I've seen that yet. And I remember 
Ken taking one of our children to an appointment and he saw a pastor coming out of the office. And even then he came home and told me and immediately judged him for being in counseling. He looked a mess, what's going on in his life. I think it's something that we just do, even though it's almost unconscious. If we learn someone's in counseling, something has to be wrong because it's not normative for us in the church yet. Um, I actually had my counseling appointment before this earlier today. We were talking about this and I do think there's just such a stigma to the sexual sins and pornography. And my counselor was referencing just how much uh, porn use has grown even during COVID. And she actually mentioned that in Europe, um, Pornhub, which I did not know that name until today, um, gave free services to people in Europe during COVID so that they could get through. Um, so that's coming from my counselor. I don't know how accurate that is, but we know how prevalent porn use is. So if we look in the church and we look at statistics, then we know that a lot of men and women in our churches are using porn, but it's that silent thing that we don't talk about. It's not addressed in churches. There's no information given. We just pretend like it doesn't exist. So if the pastor comes forward and says, I'm, I'm using porn, I'm addicted, help, then he's gonna get thrown aside. Um, at least he felt like he was gonna get thrown aside. And I think he probably was right. Um, he would have needed to step down. And then what does he do from there? Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a challenge that has to be addressed. Uh, and I, I know like in our uh, denomination, they're trying to create connections with like the CCEF program and have pastors and wives get uh, very, very discounted uh, counseling Right. And have that available um, through the presbytery. So, you know, the presbytery kind of pays for it or the church pays the presbytery, right. the presbytery pays for it, something like that. But, um, you know, so I think that could be one avenue to at least get some initial support. But there is a level like part of this is, um, you know, getting to a place where you you can be held accountable and it actually has some serious consequences, right? That accountability has consequences. So if if I am disqualified from ministry because of what I've done, then I've got to own it. And 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 I know that's like impossible to like to predict how you would react to that, but it's very possible that Ken felt disqualified and just did not want to accept it. And, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't know what to say for that other than probing, being very intentional as a, as a session with your minister, uh, with one another, frankly, and, and the men in, in a church and the women, like you said, um, this isn't exclusive to men, but, but we've got to be willing to hold each other accountable at that high level and, you know, not to say like the first reaction is you're fired, hopefully not, but but there is some accountability that has teeth to it uh, or it's not really accountability. Yeah, I really struggle with that. I mean, everything, because you're, you're right. It's like, you know, that's where I always really struggle with. It's like, okay, if I, it's you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If I mm -hmm. confess, then did I just disqualify myself with a confession? Like, let's say, for example, if you're using porn for, okay, for, for two weeks. Okay. All right. You know, I could see that nine years, you know, Oh, okay. Whoa. Did I just disqualify myself? Um, possibly, you know, I mean, you know, so, or, you know, and I, I mean, the first thing is like, we're so proud that you're actually coming forward. I think that's the first thing that really needs to be said. The second thing would be, um, you know, how do you, if, you know, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, with that first act, if I, if a pastor were to come and say that like to the session and then he's seeking help, um, there's a part of me that's like, I want him for my minister. You know, right. I love that. Yeah. There's a part of me that's like, gosh, give me that guy. Um, like, yeah. you know, um, especially for, because I have seen, I, I have seen change. I've seen, you know, men grow astronomically just through, um, books that, that I do with them, you know, and just, I was telling Brad right before this podcast, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen guys go from three hours of porn every single day 
um, for three or four years to feeling guilty for looking at an Instagram post, you know, that he just I accidentally scrolled within about two and a half months, you know, and wow. they're doing really, really well. I've got people that I know that used to see prostitutes twice a week, three times a week now are uh, wanting to serve their church and doing amazing work. And I don't worry about them because the sex addiction is really about finding that open wound. And you had said like, Ken, you know, when he was a child there, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, when you, your first, first early years of sex addiction, a lot of people understand that it's usually coming right before a child. It's right before adolescence. You don't have, it often comes before even knowing what an erection is or turn on or orgasm or anything, any of that. And all of a sudden something happens to you sexually, or it comes after your adolescence when sometimes in a very abusive environments, this is where a lot of sex addiction occur where mom and dad are just maybe very verbally abusive, maybe physically abusive. Mm -hmm. And um, right around 13, especially for a lot of young men, oh my gosh, look at the playboy under here. They masturbate. Yeah. And then that release, instead of facing this wrath, becomes like the MO for them right. for a long time. And they don't break that. It's just like, that's my quote, release from the trauma. Right. And I get the sense of that. It's probably, you know, you, you, you and I, I mean, yes. maybe a little bit of Ken's childhood or whatnot, but that could be broken. You know, that can get broken really quick. Yeah. The minute you deal with that and the minute you start really working. So I guess, you know, do you disqualify yourself or do you qualify yourself? I don't know. Yeah. I don't well, know what to do with that. You told me um, mm -hmm. childhood, it was to dead in pain. So that's what he used it for. So that's really what he continued to use it for. And if we look at, the pressure that pastors are under. Um, and remember, he used to say it's the pressure of caring for the souls of people. No one understands that burden. And that's a heavy burden. Um, and then there's also pressure to grow the church. And that was very true at our last church. They bought a huge building, brought them in, wanted them to fill that building. And I'll say he was a phenomenal preacher. Like I thought he was a great preacher and I'm still not taking that away from him. Um, but that's not up to him to fill a building. You know, that's, that's God's work. So when there is that pressure on someone, they need an escape. And that's what he chose as an escape. Um, going back to Brad's point, you're right. He should have confessed. <laughs> you know, what do you do there? Because he knew it was eating him apart. Um, now, add a little bit for Ken. He did end up having a personality disorder that really came to fruition. So that played a huge role in there. Um, borderline personality disorder, some narcissistic tendencies. So add that in. That's why he didn't come forward. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't going to do that. But talking about brokenness, his sermons the last year when he was deep in the sin, they changed. He was so broken and lots of people would comment to him on how, how they could kind of tell that he was preaching from the heart and from real experience. And um, the word really penetrated people's hearts during that time even more so because I think he was aware of where he stood before God. You know, he was admitting it to God. He wasn't admitting it to the session, um, but I knew it. But I would get in this cycle, which it's kind of hard for people to believe, but I'll, it, it was my cycle is I would see things during the week that I knew were not right. I knew were not biblical. Um, just his treatment of me or the kids or talking about other people, whatever it might be. Um, I would sometimes bring it up to him and he would turn it back on me. There was a lot of gaslighting. And then I would hear him preach and I would think, okay, no, it has to be me because look at this guy preaching. He's preaching so powerfully. It can't be him. I have to be the one who's at fault. So it was just this continuous cycle for me that I really don't want other wives to fall into um, who are in similar positions, which is why I want to help counsel them as well. What emotions did you have over the past several years? I mean, um, 
how did you maneuver that? I mean, going from just feeling very guilty and then going, yes. coming out of it, but what, if, yeah, love to hear. Lots of varied, very varied emotions. Um, right after he resigned, I was determined to stay with him. I thought, you know, he's telling me the truth and I understand he's broken and, um, everything is going to be okay. Our marriage is going to survive. I remember standing up on a Wednesday night at church and saying that, which now I look back and kind of laugh a little bit. Um, as I learned more and more, I experienced some anger, just a lot of hurt and betrayal. Um, at that time, our church was taking good care of him, but they kind of left me alone and just wanted him to minister to me because he hadn't much in our marriage. But then that's leaving me with an addict to minister to me who also is kind of narcissistic and that didn't go so well. Um, so I just sunk deep into a pit. Um, lots of depression. Um, took me a year or so to get out of that and just uh come back to myself. I tend to be a pretty joyful person. Um, but when you're going through trials and you're left all alone, it's hard to be joyful. Um, it's hard to admit this, but there was some relief that was mixed in because our house was very much a walking on eggshells kind of house. Um, you didn't want to get dad upset. Um, because when you're sinning or addicted, you're also irritable and angry, and that has to be taken out on someone. Um, so there was some relief that our house could be peaceful again, um, which is hard to see. What, what kind of opened your eyes? Sorry, Missy, for interrupting. Because I, I, I really want to ask this. Just like, What kind yeah. of opened it like for you? Was there a friend? Was there... Um, I got in counseling Highlands where I go now. Um, they sent me to a great counselor um, and he started working with boundaries. And when I started putting up boundaries, that's when Ken's behavior escalated. Um, but I started protecting myself and protecting my kids. And then I started to see the abuse that was happening. Um, and had happened, and I called that to his attention, and um, he agreed some, but disagreed at other points. He did do a stint in rehab for several months, and that helped. He was very open to learning about his own mental health when he was in rehab. Um, he came to um, deny kind of his diagnosis later, but he was willing to hear when he was there, he was at rock bottom. Well, what he thought was rock bottom then, um, he actually did get lower, but um, counseling, yeah. This is the kind of story that we need to hear. I think pastors yeah. need to be informed. Um, and, I mean, everyone needs to be informed that they can that they can get help and that it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, as as devastating. Um, but it's going to be painful. And I think, right. you know, that's where I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is just realistically, uh, depending on the level of, of the addiction, depending on the level of the, of the trauma and trial, it might be that pastoral ministry is not for that pastor. And, yes. and that's okay. That has to be okay for someone, right? You have mm -hmm. to be able to go, God might be calling me to something else. It might not be best for me to shepherd this group of people in my condition. And um, even though God used him, right, as you said, God used his preaching, God used his ministry in miraculous ways. Um, again, that's just, uh, it, that's the grayness of this whole whole subject. It's like, man, do you disqualify someone as soon as they confess something? I don't think you do. I wouldn't want to say that, but I, I would want to say like that for the person who is listening to this, who's in the middle of an addiction that they've not confessed to people. Maybe they haven't confessed it to their wife. Um, like it, they've got to begin with that honesty. Right. Yeah. And, and, and be able to confess things to, uh, to those that, that they've hurt and offended and, and then, you know, and get the help that they need. I knew the last year or two, I knew he shouldn't be in ministry. 
Um, and that's hard for a wife to know that because what are your options as a wife? <laughs> you know, are you going to um, ask your husband to do something that is going to drastically affect your kids? Um, you know, the pain that my kids have gone through is hard for me to watch. Um, and so what, what is the right thing? I did um, get a letter from someone from our church and it was a very hard letter to read. She, um, it was very attacking. And one of the things she said in there was that I was to blame because I let him keep preaching. There's some truth to that. I don't think she did it the right way, but I do have to carry the guilt of that. Um, I have learned if you look at wives of people who have borderline, and it may be true of wives who have addiction too, he really undid me. I cannot tell you, I didn't realize the effect that he had on me. Um, absolutely no self-esteem, very little self-worth. Like this will make me cry. But um, he really um, affected how I see myself in so many ways. And so I wasn't strong then. I couldn't stand up to him. I know I couldn't do that. And um, a lot of that is just his behavioral, the effects of it on me. So I am a lot stronger now. I don't know what I would do now. But I think in general, wives are not going to come forward. They're not. I really don't know. It's so easy for us to be self-righteous when, you know, until you're actually in the situation yourself. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I if it's okay, I, I like what you wrote. You know, I sent you, Missy, yeah, an outline right. when you said wives definitely feel trapped if we talk, our husbands lose their livelihood, affect kids too. And pastors just don't know who to trust with their secrets. And I just mm -hmm. thought that was just really, you know, insightful, but also sad it as well, sad. right there. Um, when the last few years, can you, because, because in the beginning, because something you said earlier about, about like not be, to be called in the ministry, I remember meeting Ken and having lunch with him. And I, I definitely felt this as a guy called to the ministry, you know, in the, in the early years. I mean, kind of, if I remember him, he was kind of, he was a firestone on certain things. I mean, he really did he, uh, the, um, a lot of the MDiv guys and they get really self-righteous. I remember him getting really uh, irritated about that. And you know, I think he and I had a little back to, you know, I can't remember what we were debating or something. And then we then kind of reconciled. Um, when did you start like questioning or seeing the breakdown? Was it, was it like right at, right before the whole Ashley Madison stuff? Or was there right. stuff in particular that just like year, I don't know, 2009, 2010, you're like, huh, this is different. Because right. I think a lot, I think a lot of people don't know what to look for, and what, the reason why I wanted to have you on is because you've been here, you've you've right. seen this. So right. I'm imagining baseline, and you know, early Ken was probably doing really well, and then all of a sudden, just things kind of progressed or digressed. Right. What did, What did you start seeing just in the house, like little things? And right. feel free to add anything, Brad. But yeah. yeah, this is hard to answer because I did miss so many of the signs. Um, his depression and anxiety were so pervasive that they really affected so much in our home life. Um, and so I'm not sure how to say, oh, I saw something else. I did catch him with pornography and it was probably in the early 2010s. Um, and he'd been using it for a long time and I just didn't see it. I uh, was talking to my counselor about this today. And when your wife married to a sexual addict and he wants to go watch TV or read at night, you're good with that. <laughs> you know, you're, you're ready for a break. And so I just, and I trusted him. And I think it's partly he was um, very intellectual. He was a great preacher. He was kind to his friends um, and kind to, like you said, racism, to groups that were kind of disenfranchised or not 
um, thought well of. He, he was. And so you look at that character and you think, why wouldn't I trust him? Um, I know his anger did heighten some of his comments to children, one child in particular heightened, um, and that, that child has a lot of issues that he's having to work through too. Um, even things like social media use, um, he was always on his phone. I look back at family pictures or when we're on vacations and he's always on his phone, <laughs> drives me crazy. Um, but he also, like you said, he loved to debate. He almost lived for those debates. So if he had a good Facebook debate with someone, he thought that was great. And I remember him actually calling someone out. It was an intern at another church who questioned him on Facebook and he pitched a to the pastor of that church. And um, that was a sign for me, you know, the narcissism is ramping up and, and you can't be right. Um, also how he talked about people. He was, it, it's that borderline, either people are really good or they're really bad and it can go back and forth. And I never knew what was real and what wasn't, um, whether people were really the way he was describing them or whether they were just a normal person who does good and bad things. Um, so those little signs were there, um, but so many things that I missed. I think if, if people are sex addicts, if pastors are, there's so much available to them online and with online platforms that I did find out, I don't know if I should say this, but he was writing sermons while Skyping with someone that became his soulmate in London. So, you know, how do you prevent that? How do you know that? They can do anything they want when they're at work and there's no way that we would ever know. We're just the wife at home cooking dinner and doing laundry. <laughs> you know, I don't. Let me, let me go all the way back. Did, did he ever confess to you um, prior to this, like uh, addictions? Did he say like, oh, it was way in the past and I've kind of overcome those things now? No. Or was it just like completely hush? It was completely hush. Um, I didn't, let me back up, say one thing. When our current church, our last church, came and interviewed us at our previous church, he told me afterward that they asked him if he um, ever used pornography, and he told them no. I didn't question him. I believed him um, because I didn't have a reason to. But I didn't learn about the things in his childhood until after we were separated. Um, I learned about a year before he told me that he had met up with someone. So I did find out he had an affair then. Um, mm -hmm. He actually did go to counseling, but not a Christian counselor. And his response from that, he did a year of counseling was, she told me it was just circumstantial and it was because of the pressures at church and that's why I had this affair. Um, but he was doing counseling and I believed him. Looking back, yeah. I wish I had gotten to go to that counselor. Um, mm -hmm. But it did, it did continue to escalate after that. Yeah, that's a red flag. If someone, if I meet with anyone and they tell me they've never struggled with lust or something, they've never yeah. had, as depending on their age, I guess most of the in most cases um, they're hiding something. Mm. And you know, I I think a, a readiness and a kind of a willingness to to go deeper than that, like, um, and to ask hard questions, but to see like what. Uh, these are touchy subjects and I, I think right. people have to be able to be honest, mm -hmm. but not feel like they're being interrogated to the point right. that, you know, they're. Just well, and I wonder, do most <laughs> Christian women, like when I hear you say that's a red flag, if they say they've never struggled, um, do most Christian wives know that? Do they know that? If their husbands say they've never struggled, that's a red flag. They're probably lying. Or well, do they believe their husbands? I think they want them to say no. And that's where the that's where the dichotomy and it's such a trick question. It's kind of right. like, you know, 
um, what was the lawyer joke? You know, he, uh, he asked the defendant, so when did you stop beating your wife? Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. you're, you're not going to, it's, it's a trick question. It's, yeah. it's and you think a, maybe they did in the past, but oh, yeah. well, my husband, not now. I mean, right. he's an elder in the church or he's got I mean, it, girls, I, the age of these girls that he's looking at, you know? It, yeah. Well, I mean, I could say this. I mean, one of the things I do see in the church, I mean, I counsel, I do counsel a lot of men who struggle with this um, pretty, pretty deep as I've, as I've shared. And one thing I, one thing I have seen is is men will go deeper in their addiction if they don't feel like their wives, if they're if they if they feel like their wives would um, divorce them immediately, right. if they were to confess, even just um, looking at porn just once, right. which is really concerning. You know that by itself because I'm not this isn't me like saying porn's okay, but I'm saying like the wives also need to show a lot of grace because what the, that particular person does in that scenario is they stop talking to the wife at all and usually their addiction gets really really bad um now i'm not justifying that his wife you know not be upset that's not what i'm saying but the wife also kind of needs i do think that there's a difference between male temptation and female temptation and that's why you have to rein stuff in really quick i mean so the the group that i have you know we use a book called compulsive solutions um sorry um not compulsive through compulsive solutions it's called um Breaking the cycle. Uh, breaking the cycle. Okay. Yeah. And it's it's a lot of just like understanding male addiction, male sex right. addiction. Like the very first thing that a guy sees is sex. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, a lot of wives don't even understand that that's how the male brain works. It's like, you know, it's <laughs> it's really not great. <laughs> you know? no, so, know. and that's not even men trying to quote cheat in that moment. And if, and if guys don't know how to understand that about themselves like really quickly and be able to have a conversation an open conversation with their wives they're they're already in trouble now you don't give that impression at all you seem so filled with grace you're forgiving and wonderful and and it seemed like his biggest fear was really his maybe his reputation you know is the way I think he, it was reputation yeah. it um i probably shouldn't say this but it it got to the point where I would have women come to me um, because their husbands were doing porn. I'm like, porn? That's all you got? <laughs> You're not right. Yeah, right. I, sad <laughs> to say, I mean, I well, that's kind of where response. I am too, because I've you could probably imagine the amount of stories that I have heard, and I'm sure you've I heard that I'm like, have. yeah, and yeah. that's not me downgrading no. it, but I mean, <laughs> but yeah. and I did mention this, like in the little thing I sent to you when mm. we first moved here. He was on a committee. And there was a pastor who was brought before that committee who um, whose wife wanted to divorce him solely for porn use. And I remember that got Ken really upset. Um, so looking back, maybe that's a flag. But I thought it was more just mm. that's not that abnormal of a thing. They need to do counseling first. Why are we approving this divorce for porn use? Now, I... I know that's something I'm going to have to look into and struggle through my views on that. And I haven't done that. Um, so I do want to say, I don't know where I'll come down, but um, I think that might've impacted him. You know, did he think I would leave him? Although it, I, I caught him after eight years. That's hard to admit because I know that makes me look like, Well, I feel like that makes me look like a fool. You know, how did you not catch him for eight years? But he was good. He was very Um, good at hiding. But my first response (laughs) was actually compassion toward him. Because imagine being trapped in a sin for eight years. And what does that do to you? Um, Now, I think he took advantage of that compassion and um, Mm. didn't put in the effort to change, to, to truly repent. Um, it just kind of stayed off the addiction for a time. Um, and then he got to a point later on, I'll always remember these words. Um, it was toward the end, maybe a year before the end. And he told me if he could choose to get better or be understood and loved, he would rather be understood and loved for who he was. That was such his need to be accepted in his broken state, in his sinful state. 
and mm. I didn't give that to him. Um, and I don't think I should have given that to him, but that just tells you how the progression goes and how um, low he got and how far away from God he got toward the end. Yeah. I, and I, I want to bring this back to like the, the practical thinking about the person who maybe is hesitant to share, especially because of the potential consequences Maybe they're in a similar situation right. that Ken felt they're trapped. Mm. If they if they say something, they're going to lose her job and or possibly their marriage. And um, and I think there is a danger in like your spouse being your sole accountability yes. partner, yes. right? Um, mm -hmm. So maybe we could talk about that and yeah. and saying like at I think there that conversation has to take place at some point. Right. And, and early on, I think there needs to be some confession um, and then it should transition to that accountability with uh, godly men who can who can show both that compassion, but also the kind of the provide that accountability, the, the, right. the stiff uh, backbone that that can hold someone um you know, that, that says there's, there's some consequences to these actions. And, and I don't think uh, the, the, the wife or the husband, depending right on the situation, right. the spouse is always the best person. They're just not the best person to be that accountability mm -hmm. partner. Um, I actually did um, mm -hmm. tell one of our elders and he held him accountable but I think I chose the wrong person because it was someone that I trusted, someone we were both friends with, but he would get together with him and he would mostly talk about himself and not deal with the issues that needed to be dealt with. Um, mm -hmm. And so I thought I was doing the right thing, but it didn't quite work out. Mm -hmm. Like in my ideal world, I think all pastors should have to do counseling all the time, just mandatory mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe not yeah. continuous, but that gives them a safe place. And if the church mm -hmm. expects them to be in counseling, then they're not asking them why they're in counseling. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, they just need a safe person apart from the church that they can talk to. Now, I don't know how you bring that in for accountability because I know the session does need accountability. But sessions are also broken. And there are some churches that are bad, have bad sessions. And right. what do you do there if you have a prideful mm. session? What? I'm I have my opinion. <laughs> well, so. <laughs> I mean, if you, I mean, it, it, can I, can I jump in? I mean, because I, I actually would much rather have a pastor just go and I, I Okay, so I'm going to challenge this. I don't think it needs to be a Christian counselor. I think it needs to be a good counselor that deals right. with the hard issues. I have a I have a non-Christian counselor. He's been helping me for the past nine years, but he loves my faith and he loves what he's done. And he's gone deep, deep, deep with me. And I'm a yeah. better husband, much better dad because of him. And um, but I go to a really great, awesome church and I get the Lord's word. I mean, I think with counseling, I take the view that it's really in the area of common grace. And I think what you do is yeah. you I think. I personally think you go get help ASAP and you let that person be your person and you deal with your, sh your shit. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> and you go really, really deep with that person and, and you make sure that that, that person is, he challenges you or she challenges you and loves you and contains you, but you don't feel like there's no dual role. That's what's nice about counseling is that yes. I know that my counselor is not going to fire me. I know that my, so I'm not going to be honest with the guy at church. Sorry. I'm not telling this guy that I'm just watched an hour of porn. I got to preach the next morning. Hi, how are you? Yeah, everything's great. Yeah, I struggled this week a little bit. That's exactly what I'm going to say to them. But my therapist, yeah, I go deep. <laughs> I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, and I would much rather have that pastor go to somebody that like can't fire him and get a lot better really quick and deal with a lot of his stuff than just, I don't know if I, this is me through now. I'm not, I don't work for the church. I'm not a, I'm a therapist. I mean, I don't know if the setup at church is really, I don't know. I, you have to convince me, Brad. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a, I, I can understand what you're saying. I do think there's a, you would, it would have to be a dual 
pronged approach because I think you you could have that secular kind of just someone who's wise with addiction and and uh, yeah. and knows about counseling someone who has a habitual problem. But I think the their the level of accountability, the responsibility of the shepherd can yeah. be can't be uh, completely uh, you know I like you, you can't just get around that um, without not going against scripture, right? I mean, we have, there's responsibilities to, to be accountable, to be shepherded by, by godly men who can care for your soul. And that is the burden that, you know, that Ken spoke about. That's, that's a burden that, that we have. And, and I think as pastors, we are members, at least in our, in the Presbyterian denomination, right? We're members of the Presbytery, not members of the church so there there is some peer accountability at that regional level and i think it could happen not with necessarily a session so when you were talking about what if you're at you have a bad session i i could understand starting with the presbytery or starting with individuals even at the general assembly level the national level where you say i need i need help i'm not sure how to approach this with my church in my current situation mm-hmm. and and kind of go that route but I think it's at some point it's going to come back to the that session and it might be a situation where you've got to leave because it's a toxic relationship. But um, I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that there's an easy solution here, obviously. Like I think we we're all sort of recognizing that, that it's a complicated matter um, that it, it's not just that like secular counseling is going to solve the problem. And if, if it's a spiritual, if there's a spiritual component to it, uh, then I think you have to deal with that spiritual component as well. And I would say every sin has a spiritual component. So I just took uh, several classes that kind of speak to this. Um, I don't have addictions till January, so I don't know a lot about it yet, but um, well, I know a lot experientially. But I know um, I had Ligon Duncan for systematics and Ligon's really good at saying, okay, when I meet with someone, I'm going to deal with their spiritual component, but I'm going to recognize addiction is something I can't handle. So I'm going to send them over to a Christian counselor too. And then they might work in harmony, but there's still some privacy with the Christian counselor or the secular counselor that they're not going to share everything. Now, as you get deeper into counseling, maybe your therapist will want you to share and that, that can be a next step, um, but it can be a dual-pronged approach. And then following up on what you said about the um, a church, a toxic church, I did put that in my notes too, because there, um, Ken did have a lot of pressure at our last church, and there are some ways where, trying to figure out my wordings, where maybe that we should have walked away from the church before that, just for the sake of our marriage and for the sake of our kids. And it's okay for guys to hear that, that even a church isn't worth your mental health. Um, Just the same as um, these men need to, to speak up and say they're in sin. If the church is in sin, they also need to walk away. Missy, what, is there anything you wanted to, uh, you know, say is on what we can do better? And if you go back and what you would like Only to have one seen. one more and, thing. And I think that's yeah. the education. I think if churches would educate their people more on sexual matters. Um, and I know I've talked to a friend of mine who's a counselor. Um, she works with a lot of gender dysphoria and things like that. The church just isn't educated. If if we could take a more proactive role as a body and talk about these things openly, um, I think that would really help. It would help wives be able to see some of the signs, maybe to know what to do. Um, And maybe it would help men realize that they're not abnormal in a sense. I don't know if men think that, if they think no one else is trapped as much as I am in this sin, or if they just think everyone is. Um, I don't know how they think, but maybe that would help. Yeah. I mean, I think what men don't do is that they don't ask why. 
And I know that that's right. the key for sex addiction. If you can go to that open wound and ask why, yes. like when the temptation comes. Also, a lot of guys, they get stuck in a starting over mentality. I mean, the basics for addictions for me is a difference between the starting over mentality and a pothole mentality. I remember this okay. being told me a, a while ago and it really clicked for me. And I, I apply this to all my guys that struggle with this or have addictions is that with all addictions, the reason why it often, you know, just the cycle keeps going and going and going is because they have this starting over mentality, which basically goes like this. It's like, okay, I look at porn. I feel terrible. I beat the crap out of myself. I confess to my friend. Then I feel good. And then I do all these amazing things. And then I get kind of prideful and then I fall and then I feel terrible. And then I go through that over yeah. and over and over and over again. A lot of guys are stuck like that. So it's kind of, kind of like the AA approach. Like, Hey, I've been sober for like two years and seven, right. seven hours and four days. The problem with that is that the minute you quote fall, all of the work that you once did goes down the drain and then yes. you fill with shame and guilt, which by the way, never actually help people out of their addiction right. and they just spiral. If they can go from the starting over mentality to a pothole mentality, I live in Boston. Sometimes I've had potholes hit a lot. Jackson. And then you, yeah, you say the F word and then you're like, you keep going. <laughs> but you get so good at recognizing potholes, but you get to your destination. You make a mistake, but you keep going and you keep going and you get going. One's a shame and guilt cycle, the starting over mentality that just sucks you out. The other one is, no, I've actually done some good stuff. Okay, I fell a pothole and then I keep going and I keep going. Yeah. And you, it's a total change of your identity because you've done amazing, you've done so many better things in your life than that one time you looked and you have to change your cycle. You have to change your, and that's how you get out of it. And then when it goes, when, when, the, when the addiction comes, you don't just you don't just follow a dog in his tail. You're you're asking the question, why? What are you doing? Why are you here? And you 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 get to know your addict self, and you're like, okay, his name's Bill. His name's Frank. His name's Johnny. What are you doing right now? Why are you wanting me to look at the porn? Right. Well, because your wife was mean to you. So you you're telling me that if I look at porn, that would solve the problem with my wife not being mean to me. Is that what you're saying? You're having a dialogue. What a lot of guys in sex addiction, they just like they see it. There's no dialogue. There's no dialogue at all. And so if you can build that, a lot of it is actually like, that's how a lot of these guys get really, they get better, like really fast. Right. And they go from that starting over to a pothole mentality and they start dialoguing and they're asking deeper and deeper and deeper questions. Why do I want this to solve my open wound? The saddest thing, honestly, I mean, I, I tear up thinking of Ken, I mean, just because I, I, you know, just, it's just, there was help, you know, that's right. shit. You know, there was hope. Yeah.